Bring them in on your mission. Bring them into your heart and let them understand what your stake in the matter is. Let people know why you are really making what you're making and what you want to have happen in the world and why you do it. So they really get what's in it for them. Hey everyone, welcome to Supercasters. I'm Jason Suhoy, co-founder and CEO of Supercast. And on this show, we interview world-class podcasters deconstruct their growth strategies and find out how they build sustainable, independent businesses that thrive on a strong relationship with their listeners. In this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Alcesor, an independent producer who has an incredible track record of helping teams form their original podcast strategy. Michael's the co-founder of the critically acclaimed Radiolab podcast, a two-time Peabody Award winner that focuses on the investigation of big ideas told through sounds and stories. But Michael's experience runs much deeper than that, having worked on Freakonomics Radio, On The Media, Two Dope Queens, and all the shows at WNYC Studios. He now helps teams build their content, communication, and monetization strategies through his company, The Minute House. If you want to connect with Michael on Twitter, it's at Michael Alcesor, M-I-K-E-L-E-L-L-C-E-S-S-O-R. Did I get that right, Michael? Exactly. This awesome. is one of those names. Uh, well, Suhoi, Suhoi is not the easiest to read out uh, over the waves either. But yeah, welcome to the show. Great to have you. It's a real pleasure, Jason. Thank you for this. So maybe for the people that aren't familiar with you, uh, would love to just kind of hear from you. How did you get into podcasting? Oh yeah, well, I'm an old radio hand. You know, I, I came up through the world of, of radio when you could get in with, you know, no college degree, no background, no no nothing. Found myself in a studio at, at 14 years old and said the light is about to turn red and you better have something to say. <laughs> it's been basically like downhill ever since that of just sort of finding my ways into studios and with creative people and spent many, many years launching and growing, you know, community radio stations in in Pittsburgh and, and in other places. Eventually was at WNYC in the late 90s. And soon after, I was the program director at WNYC on 9-11. Soon thereafter, uh, after we had grown the station quite a bit, and we had this show called On the Media, which we were really passionate about because we had some fantastic hosts with um, Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield, and Arun Roth was our senior producer. And, and the show was just on fire, and we still weren't happy with the adoption that we were getting at local public radio stations. They were saying they liked it, but they, they just weren't sort of picking it up as fast. And, and we felt that the show, especially in those post 9-11 years, could really add a lot to people's lives. Just from being, you know, in the parts of the internet where the early days of podcasting was happening and where people were talking about it, we decided to just try it as an experiment. And mm -hmm. so in very, very, very early 2005, we did what everybody was doing at that time is we dropped the on the media audio file into an RSS feed. And in about 60 days, we had as many people listening to the on the media podcast as if we had picked up three major market public radio stations. Mm. 
So it was just one of those times when the technology and the audience really met themselves, but it was ridiculously early. You know, it was right as Apple was updating iTunes and the, the initial folding in of podcasting into iTunes and the diesel powered you know, iPods that you had to use mm. to sync up. Yeah. Uh, it was just really, really early. And so we got in, we know we reached a lot of people. We, we felt it made a difference, but it wasn't until, you know, everything else that's been better documented than I could ever spell out that we saw really the, you know, the real potential of mobile on-demand audio. That's amazing. And I would love to know as somebody who was right at the forefront of that wave, that shift of, you know, radio to digital and podcasting. Has that happened faster than you expected, slower than you expected? Uh, I would love to know your perspective on that. We thought it was going to really ripple out quickly, and we were very wrong. There was just a lot of adoption that needed to happen. And, and like I said, it's very, very smart people have documented this and written about it. And, and I have to agree. I mean, I think what we needed was the ubiquity of a higher powered handset that you were just going to have, you know, attached to you all the time mm-hmm. and mobile networks. You know, we just needed that layer of strength of computing power in your hand and the ability to get access to it quickly and cheaply. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like all of the friction of the end user, that final step for the user needed to get worked out. And then now we still have other issues that are needing to get worked out for, I think, for it to go to the next and the next and the next levels of adoption and cultural impact. So, you know, discovery, broadening out the people who are actually making this content. And and, and when people talk about why are only certain people listening or why hasn't it reached into certain communities? And, And I think it's because we still have overall a fairly narrow maker base, right? You know, it's still a lot of, still a lot of white folks coming from specific backgrounds even though it's expanded way beyond the post-public radio world, and we've seen lots of really, really strong, creative, commercially-based makers come into the space, um, we still just need to see so much more growth for who's making the material. And that's going to do a lot to help bring new folks into the medium. So fixing discovery from a technological point of view, getting more people making it so that it'll welcome more folks in, and then just a wider base of genre. You know, like we still don't have a strong fiction category, you know, in podcasting. Fiction is incredibly important to people's lives. Narrative stories, the hero stories that we tell ourselves um, are what sustain us as cultures and communities. But we haven't really cracked fiction yet. The three things that I walk around thinking about that, that might really get us to go up to the next layers of adoption and importance and cultural impact. Those are the things that I think about a lot that would make it go faster. Interesting. If I could ask a little bit further on one of those, what do you think is, you know, in terms of like the next step of broadening out that creator base, when you're thinking about that, what are the next steps that you think we need to take as an industry? Yeah, well, I mean, that really kind of ties really closely to what, you know, we're going to be talking about some here today is, you know, if you have an ad-based model, advertisers are comfortable buying advertising on certain types of media. And we have seen historically media that comes from communities that aren't sort of majority white spaces. It's just harder for them to attract advertising. 
Right. right. So the people who place advertising, the people who sell advertising, the people who are buying advertising, they tend to be, you know, from, like I said, certain communities. And when we see that still shaping the advertising curve in podcasting, it's just behaving like the rest of media. Mm -hmm. The ability for makers and the communities to build monetization, to build revenue, to build communal support networks, independent of the ad model will do a lot, I think, to broaden out and diversify who's making it because they're going to find new ways to support themselves that don't rely on the ad world. That's what it is. I don't think it's any big grand scheme. Um, I think it's just stuff that's been observed and really well documented over the years of just uh, how narrow the world can be, you know, when, unless there's a lot of pressure put upon it to change. Right. I think then the the advertising world will change and will adapt rather to to welcome new makers once there's there's a demonstrated impact. Right. You know? Absolutely. Okay. And then would love to know. Obviously, Radiolab is a big brand, and a lot of our listeners will know that show and admire that show. How did you get started co-founding that? Yeah, that was very much a post 9-11 experience, you know. So the station that I was at at the time, WNYC, was um, just a couple of blocks from the event. So we were actually forced out of our building when 9-11 happened. And Jad was working there at the time on a show. And as we got back into the studios and we were looking around at, at what were we going to do that could speak to where we were at the time, you know, speak to what, what New York City was feeling like in 2002. Mm. Jad and I just started talking and there were, there were so many experiments that were happening with people gathering together documentary work from around the world and kind of curating these documentary shows. And that's really how Radiolab started. And we spent a long time you know, and, and Jad's talked about this really, really well in a number of public talks that he's given about just how, frankly, bad the show sucked for a long period of time until right. we figured out the voice and and Jad found his voice. And, and the thing that I'm just happiest about is that there was the opportunity to create an environment around him so that he could have time to work and develop his voice. Nothing could ever be taken away from how hard that man worked and continues to work to continue to evolve his voice. And then he's created space for all of these other folks to come in and grow themselves as audio artists and as storytellers and as journalists. So he's just kind of kept paying it back and paying it back. So that, that's what we were really facing is, is we were looking around at life that felt very upended right after 9-11 and, and looking at 2002 and saying, how could we do something that felt really contemporary? And we, we wanted to, to highlight these voices. And then over time, this great storyteller, you know, stepped to the front. And my job was to make sure that he had the resources that he needed. And we helped to grow the brand. And then eventually Ellen Horn came in as the executive producer and I stepped back from the show. And Ellen was the person that worked with Jad for the years when the thing that people now think of as Radiolab really emerged and grew and Robert Krolwich came in and just so many talented people joined the staff. And I rejoined Radiolab when I was back working with WNYC Studios a few years ago and stepped back into a support role for them on, on the business and monetization side. And um, it was really great to reconnect with the show after being gone for a decade hmm. and having all of these new, really extraordinary people to interact with and to have this, what I still think is maybe the best audience community in the world, hmm. you know, that have grown up around it and to start a much more mature conversation with them about 
okay, here we are. <laughs> We're kind of passionate about going out in the world and being curious and asking questions and playing with sound and just how good it feels to have your brain kind of sparking. Hmm. Now, how can we find new ways to pay for it with an audience of the size and the passion um, of radio labs? We were able to get in there and do some pretty radical experiments uh, and really figure out, I think some, some important things about how to create a really equitable relationship with an audience mm -hmm. You know, I think that's the reciprocity is really super important. Right. So yeah, it's been a long, long path of being with the show and then stepping away from the show and then coming back to it. And and now having stepped back away from it for a while and watching what Jad has done with Dolly Parton's America and the subsequent seasons of the Supreme Court show and, and everything else that they're doing. I mean, I think they're still going from strength to strength. Yeah, absolutely. In the early days, when did you realize... Uh, when did the team realize that, you know, it was going to be something much bigger than maybe originally envisioned? Was there a moment or was it just kind of an organic, gradual increase? It was very slow. I mean, Radiolab really is a case study in slow, organic growth. Mm -hmm. There were moments that we would see where something would spark with the audience, but it was a very long process. And, and I think that's a really important Thing to always keep as part of the conversation is the degree to which creativity is a daily practice. Right. You have to stay in it and stay in it and stay in it. It's really, it's the practice of welcoming and being like water on stone, you know, in your life. You just have to stay there and stay with it and, and be water on stone and, and look for those moments where you can find them. But it really tests you around belief and perseverance and getting strong with the unknown and, and just getting strong with, with <laughs> looking in the, in the mirror and knowing that that self-doubt is, is really, really large. Uh, because sometimes you have to go for a long time without a lot of signal coming back from the world about how you're doing. Right. And I think that is really important and takes me back to the thought that you had earlier that you said that, you know, Jad took him itself admittedly a long time to find that voice and to tune that voice and to turn it into uh, you know kind of like the next level of hosting for radio lab and and i was just thinking about that and wondering what were the feedback loops in that process how was he able to or you were able to kind of guide him on hey i think you know we need to kind of head in this direction and try this instead of continuing to do what what we've done in the past I can speak to the time that I was working with him most closely because really by the time that Robert came into the scene, I mean, that's when the real leaps forward, again, in the, in the, in the form that people would understand as Radiolab now took place. And, and I wasn't there for that. And so I'm really hesitant to talk about those times because mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I was in touch with Jad and, and I'm aware of those things, but I would really want him to be able to to describe that. Uh, again, the, the thing that I just consistently always think of in, in all of my times with him is just how incredibly hard he works and how willing he is to keep going back and inward. And, and this is with all of the talent these days. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm always looking for with folks is their willingness to turn back inward and ask hard questions of themselves about what are their true motivations? What, what is their true self? What are they actually trying to accomplish? And when you strip back ego and fame and trying to get the outside to give you your insides, like 
what it's really coming from inside around that expression. And I think the people who are willing to dig into that are the ones that are best set up to reach into a lot of people's lives. You know, because there's just an honesty that's really there. When we launched the show and when we were growing the show, there was a real emphasis on serving other makers. Right. We knew as funky as it was to be on an AM frequency in New York City where the power would go down at a certain point after sunset and it's just as weird as it all was. We knew that we were providing a platform for makers and we were really, really passionate in that kind of service mission. And we knew that they were telling stories that mattered and we wanted to get their work to these folks in in New York. And it was a city that really needed, I think, something different at that time. Mm -hmm. Lower Manhattan still smelled like Mm 9-11, you know, for for a long time. We were all living with that. And so I think that the passion to serve is really important. The passion to remember that creativity is incredibly important. And then over time, it was about figuring out, all right, how do we, how do we hone that and target it? How do we go from like a 12 gauge shotgun blast at the side of a barn to a, to a laser point and just keep honing and refining and focusing, but always focusing with the question of, you know, like, how do you do the craft better? How do you reach deeper into people's lives? And how do you test yourself? Yeah, that's really interesting. I imagine part of your role, you know, you, as you described it before, was giving, you know, Jad the space to be able to to do that discovery over an extended period of time. How do you make that space? And what are the kinds of conversations that you had with Jad as he was going through that process of discovery and when doubt creeps in and all that sort of stuff? How do you keep the ship pointed in kind of a positive direction? I think it's the thing that we do for each other in so many ways in our lives that it's a practice of number one, listening, making room for somebody to come in and say the thing and let them just say the thing, like whatever is there for them, whatever is really sort of strong and powerful and present is be able to close the door and let them just say the thing and Mm -hmm. let it be okay. Let them talk about whatever's scaring them. Let them talk about what's exciting them. Let them talk about the crazy thing that they, that they're, that if they tell somebody, they'll get laughed out of the room. Mm-hmm. You know, let somebody have room to say, I don't know. You're like, how many places do we go in the world, Jason, where it's really okay to walk in and say, yeah, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, you know, and that maybe that scares me a little bit. Whatever the unattractive emotion is, I think making room for all of that. But then it's also like being a cheerleader. You know, somebody's got to stand outside and say, yes, this is great. Let's keep going. And then also be willing to take it out into the world. That's where I get paid. You know, I I really love that I get the privilege of being in the lives of incredibly talented people. And that what I'm asked to do is to spend all day thinking about how do we get very large numbers of people to be excited about them? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because I believe in them and I want lots and lots and lots of people to be touched by them. You know, I've never been somebody's manager. You know, it's not an aspiration. You know, it's not not like that. But right. but I do believe that that's really important for us to create that space around people and to hold room for them. Like I said, emotionally as creative people, but then also to be there on the business side to say, I'm going to find the money for you. I'm going to be the firewall when when people are scratching around and saying, like, show me a dashboard for that is mm-hmm. to figure that out mm-hmm. um, and to be a strong advocate for them behind those closed doors. And then to be able to take that message back and, and to be able to speak to the maker in a way that says, here's how we have to interact with the organization. 
being that interlocutor, that's a job that needs to get done. Absolutely. I think that's where makers and people who do the kinds of things that I do, that's that's when we become, you know, we, we can become pretty good partners. Absolutely. Yeah, I think partners is absolutely the critical word there. And actually speaks a lot to, you know, because it's not just partnerships between the business side and the creative side, you know, the exciting thing about this conversation and, and just generally listener support is it's also a partnership with the audience. So I'd love to, to dive into this side of things, you know, the business side and the audience models that you've played a strong hand in pioneering. And actually on the Limina House website, I noticed that you very boldly proclaim that the future is about paying for podcasts, something that very much resonates with our team. I would just, you know, love to hear a little bit more about why you're so passionate about listener supported podcasting. Yeah, well, because I've watched it work. <laughs> I've watched it work. You know, I, I, at WNYC Studios, we took the experience that we had acquired from doing, I don't know, many, 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 many tens of thousands of hours of on-air fundraisers, which are the legendary and baneful world of public radio. Right. You know, most of them really suck. It's usually done really badly. It's really, it's often extremely self-centered and needy and not very audience centric. And there are a lot of sins that get committed through on-air fundraising in, in public radio. But over time, the audience, if you're listening, they teach you what words to use. They teach you how they want to be asked. They teach you what the values are of the work. And I think that's one of the most important things to be paying attention um, because it's when you have that value match between the maker who says like, this is why I'm doing it. This is what animates me. And when the audience says, oh, this is what speaks to me. And this is what gets me to give you a slice of the most valuable thing that I have, which is a couple minutes of my life. Mm -hmm. Then you've met sort of around values. And when you can figure out where that is, when you can listen carefully and have a conversation with them and really test your language and study what they're saying when they write to you and really get down to the emotional core of that, really ask, you know, what are those emotional needs that are being met? Then you can start to get yourself into a truer, space for developing that reciprocal relationship, you know, between the maker and the audience where it's, it's truly, I do for you as you do for me. Right. And I think it's a really humbling process. You have to go through a lot of ego reduction to listen like that with the audience and to make yourself open and, and to ask for that and then study, study your ass off about what are the signals that are coming back from them in, in lots of different ways and then change and then adapt and then change and be willing to kill your darlings. You know, I've had hundreds of scripts or spots or strategies, you know, that you just have to like trash because I thought it was great. The team thought it was great and it just was a flop, you know? So you have to just like chuck that and keep going. Right. And maybe in terms of the experiments, you know, we're going to deep dive a little bit into this later in the premium section, but I would love to know, how did that all start? What was the very first experiment, you know, in terms of asking for donations? And how did you make that decision to, to go in that direction? Yeah, it was really a matter. So they had already started fundraising when I came back around to start working at WNYC Studios again. So they had started fundraising during the Radiolab podcast and during a few of the others. And they were doing variations on what you would do on air during a public radio broadcast. They're doing sort of versions of that. 
and so I would say that there were a couple of things that we focused on right away that we started pushing. One was we recognized that the podcast, it seems so obvious, but it really took us a minute to figure it out, how unique the podcast experience is physically. It's not the open air, distracted, multi-purposed experience of terrestrial radio. Mm -hmm. You've made a conscious choice to dive into this thing. And, and maybe you've even set aside some time during the day, like, right, I know th this activity goes well with this listening experience, right? So you start really getting very clear and very specific right. about what's happening there. And then start asking, all right, well, what would be the form function of the message that would fit in really well there? The, the thing that I think was really the breakthrough for us is that we decided that we were going to push hard on production. Mm -hmm. is that we were going to sweat these things down like you would if you had the contract for Ford and you were going to make the F-150 commercial that was going to play during the Super Bowl. Now, you wouldn't wing that. You, right. know, you wouldn't go into the studio. Right. I mean, you'd really sweat every detail on that. And, and I think we saw the first wave of really major results jumps start to happen um, when across all of the shows, but especially Radiolab, when we upped our game on our production. We, we sweated the scripts and, and instead of however many, two or three or five edits, we were getting up to, to 10 or 12 or 15 edits. I mean, there was a, a script that Jad and I edited more than 20 times mm -hmm. um, once and tracked it, oh gosh, definitely many more than a dozen times. Mm -hmm. um, so we really started sweating that at the next level. And then we started saying, we're going to make this an extremely rewarding experience for the listener. I mean, this, we're going to make this audio sound fantastic. You know, we're going to record it beautifully. We're going to score it. We're going to pace it. We're going to use sound. We're just going to make it cinematic as hell or whatever fits with the brand right. of that show. So with Freakonomics, a Freakonomics radio listener is coming because they want Stephen Dubner to speak to them directly. Mm -hmm. So anything that you're doing that gets in the way of Stephen Dubner speaking to you, you're screwing it up. You know, if you get in the room and Phoebe and Jessica from two dope Queens want to take flight and they've got a direction that they want to go. If you get in the way of that, you're screwing it up. Right. You know, you've got to recognize what the brand is, play to that, understand what's the nature of the relationship between the maker and the, um, the listener, you know, what's the thing that they're providing that the listener is there to receive don't mess that up, support that, uh, but, but also up it, you know, and hone it and make it this, like, it's that whole thing of like coal that receives all of that pressure and all of that heat becomes a diamond, right? That's what you want to do for your host is you want to take all of the things that the audience loves about them and put that heat and that pressure on it <laughs> so that it becomes this, this compact diamond of, of quality content, you know, look, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're going into a space where you're saying like, this is what's going to provide us with the economic engine to keep working. What else are you doing? That's more important than that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like if you're not willing to strive for excellence with that, if you're not willing to do the hard work for that, then why the hell should anybody give you their money? Yeah. As opposed to it just being that last minute afterthought that you're throwing in there somewhat reluctantly, you know, and, and I guess that all comes across in the voice, right? And so I would love to know if, you know, if you've got any perspective on what people commonly get wrong 
you know, when they're trying to ask for money from their listeners? Yeah, look, I think one of the biggest things is you've got to interrogate your own relationship with money. Mm-hmm. That's that looking in the mirror and that's a getting really, really honest, you know, um, with people that hosts, you know, and I, I came out of the booth. I'm not a journalist. I'm not an independent producer in the way that most of the folks who are making podcasts these days are, but I did on-air radio every day for a decade. So I really know what we're asking for when we ask somebody to step behind a microphone and reveal themselves. There's like a lot that has to happen there. And then we're going to ask them to talk about money. A lot of folks make the mistake of conflating the results that they get around a funding ask with their sense of personal self or worth, or whether people think that their work is worth supporting. Hmm. And those things should not be conflated because there's so many other things that come into play. You may not have done an ask that spoke to the needs of the listener. The listener may not actually have the funds. It may have hit them at the wrong time. They may be in agreement with you, but they may not understand how important it is because you just haven't been emphatic enough. Mm-hmm. You know, you maybe haven't been specific enough when you make that ask. You know, there's a really big difference between saying, we can't make this podcast without your support to saying every person that puts $7 a month into this podcast are making it possible for us to tell unimaginable stories. You know, and these stories can't be told unless you give $7 a month. I mean, there's a world of difference between that really vague, what I consider to be sort of copping out language to actually saying what the damn thing is. You have to interrogate your relationship with money, really look yourself hard in the, in the mirror and say like, well, do I actually really believe that the work I'm doing is worth supporting? If you can't answer that question emphatically, yes, then should probably be doing a harder, deeper look at what you're actually doing. Should you still be doing this? Because if it's not worth supporting, well, I mean, that's great. That's great for you. You should keep making it, but don't be asking people. You know, don't waste their time and don't waste your time. So be really honest with yourself about that. And if you're saying to yourself, well, maybe it's not really worth supporting, you know, it's like there might be some other questions to be asked. That's between you and your therapist. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but I, I think you can't you can't skirt that that inquiry because um, I've watched so many hosts you know really crash on those rocks, Jason. You know because they just have not gotten honest with that. They've got their own blockages about money and their own life, and that shows up in the booth when they come in to make that ask. You you got to clear that away, and then be really clear about the craft of the ask. And that's the other big mistake that I see people make is, and we've talked a little bit about this already is, you know, this is, this ask has to cut through. It has to be specific and it has to be actionable. If you don't do those things, if you don't kind of do the work to make it succeed on all of those, then the people probably, most people are never going to respond no matter what you do. Right. You could say if a hundred people give $7 a month, I am going to reveal the secrets of life. You still might not get a hundred. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. Once donations were available, how did that affect your connection with your listeners? Is there any difference in you know how you think about 
keeping that connection, you know, serving that paying audience better? Or do you, do you try to resist kind of segmenting like that? Yeah, this is a thing I'm watching a lot of people talk about these days um, where I think I look at it differently than some people. Right. I'm overwhelmingly somebody that leans into people give you money because they appreciate the work and they want the work to continue. And first and foremost, that's what's happening. Here's some jangling in the background. That's a 75-pound dog. That you <laughs> Very but, cute one. Um, so they're giving that money because they, they support the work and they want that to continue. Some of them will want more stuff. Some of them will want more experiences. But mostly what they want is for you to keep doing what you're doing. And I think being clear and specific with folks about why you make what you make, what you want to accomplish in the world. Bring them in mm-hmm. on your mission. Bring them into your heart and let them understand what your stake in the matter is. I mean, that's, that is that kind of risky, vulnerable, open-hearted approach that I think that, that my experience is very attracting and it draws people in. And there's so many ways you can do it. It can be funny. It doesn't have to be like, oh, like a big heart on, you know, heart on the sleeve, you know, kind of thing. It's it's whatever is natural and, and true for you. But but let people know why you are really making what you're making and what you want to have happen in the world and why you do it. So they really get what's in it for them. They can see themselves then as part of this larger endeavor. This, you know, and, and that's where we really went with Radiolab is we said to people, we're here because we are endlessly curious and we are fascinated by sound and we just believe it's possible to do all of this differently. And you're here because you believe that too. Whether you've thought about it that way or not, that's why you've given us just a little bit of time in your life. And if you want more of that, it's a really simple thing. All you have to do is this one very, very simple thing. And then you get more of that. You get so much of it. So really get specific with folks about what's the value that you bring to the world. What's the role that it plays in their life and be generous, you know, open your heart and be generous. You know, when, when you make that ask, then I don't know if you want to do special events, if you want to do merchandise, if you want to do a Slack channel, like all those other things, just make sure that they're genuinely on brand with who you really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the guys that acquired a show that I support, you know, having their limited partners Slack community, it's so rigorously on brand for a show that's about startups that go to acquisition, you know, and it it hits that community exactly where it lives. It's branded as, you know, limited partners in exactly the way they are. And um, I think there are just so many ways that people can, that can do that. Um, I've had people come to me and say, well, we want to do a, an object as a thank you gift for the show. But you know what? We're really trying to like maximize our net revenue. So we want to just, just do something cheap and cheerful. Hmm. <laughs> it's, to me, it's always been like, oh, well, that's like really putting language to you saying like, Oh, I really like disrespect the audience because I'm going to, I'm going to thank them for supporting our work by giving them something cheap and cheerful. Right. You know, a a thank you gift can be inexpensive, but it can also be memorable and kind and meaningful. 
you know, I, I think these things are really important. They sound really, I think, picky and 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 everything else maybe to some people, but but I think we're asking people to do something so out of the rhythm of their normal lives, and especially now with where the economy is, where media choices are, with so much that is around us, and yet we are still needing so much, you know, as a society that we still need so much as, as in our media world, um, that if you're going to ask people to give up some money, you know, you've got to come to that relationship with a lot of gratitude and be the one that risks first and, and come with that kind of generosity of, of spirit or else you should just really find something, some other way to monetize. Amazing advice. Just on that note, were donations the only thing you tried? Were there other ways to monetize that you experimented with as well? Uh, we did events, like sweepstakes kinds of things, and they could be fun. Um, so we flew people into New York City to do a bowling night at a really cool lane over in Brooklyn. Events can be great. I, I'm like, I think you should try everything. I just think with each one of those, you should get really, really honest about what is the net return and be really ruthless about cataloging your hours mm -hmm. and sweat that P&L. You know, events, as all kinds of people in the not-for-profit world will tell you, are relationship-growing exercises. They're rarely true net bottom line enhancing right. things. I love branded merchandise but it's got to build the tribe you know it's gotta it's gotta be the thing that people want to show off in their if we ever have cubes at work or <laughs> or whatever you know yeah. it's it's gotta be it's gotta be a manifestation of of the tribalism you know that they're that they're a part of a hundred dollars to get a ceramic coffee mug that's drop shipped from china i mean like but if it's got the right branding and if it really is an expression you know, of that, then it can be great. And I see shows do some really interesting things around all of that that really shows that they get the true nature of their brand and they get how to surprise and delight the audience and how to, how to make that tribe really thrive. I noted at the beginning of this conversation, you referred to the tribe, the Radio Lab tribe as the best audience community in the world. And so maybe, you know, this is just a great place to circle back. And I'd love to know what is it about that tribe that leads you to that conclusion. The reason why I always say that about them, and you know, there's so many shows, Night Vale, This American Life, uh, so many shows that have just incredible audiences. You know, the Thirst Trap Women. I mean, they're just, oh, there's so many that come to mind that you can just tell they've tapped something in the life of the audience and that there's real reciprocity, there's real symbiosis there between them. Um, and I, I just, I love that so much. For us with Radiolab, at the end of the day, what was consistently made available, the promise was, and that we worked really, really, really hard to fulfill on that promise, is we're going to give you something that's memorable, that's worth every minute that you're going to get it, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to add to your life. It'll probably be fun, or if it's not fun, it will be meaningful and resonant, and we respect you. We're just asking for 60 bucks for that. Mm -hmm. That's it. And if you give 60 bucks, we will keep doing that. And then, and then we were really hard on ourselves about, about living up to that promise, you know, and, and, and in the way that Jad and the team have like created new shows and brought in 
new producers who could tell stories in different ways and gone into new topic areas. I mean, I think they've just continued to prove over and over and over again that they're worth the promise that they've made, which is that we respect you. Um, we want to make this a meaningful place to spend your time. Um, and if you do your part, we'll do ours. And so it didn't get confused with like, what's the giga or what's the crap that we're going to send out in the mail or what's the this or what's the that, you know, it just really became about I'll scratch your back. You'll scratch mine. If you really kind of like focus on that and get really good at articulating your mission and especially articulating your mission through the life of the listener, a lot can happen. Like pretty magic things can happen. There's a lot of work that has to happen to be able to lift yourself up from getting yourself out of that producer head, which is I'll, I'll tell you what the value of it is through my eyes as a producer. But no, you've got to say like, this, this is what you get, you know? So with, with Phoebe and Jessica, it was like, we're two black women. We are comics. We are living our lives as, you know, women in New York city, trying to make ourselves, you know, through the world professionally, we were going to have fun. We were going to call out all the bullshit. Um, and, and that's why you're here for the ride is that this was a unique place for you to stop and you're going to get something that was really going to talk to you, or you're going to get a view into a world that you wouldn't be able to get access to. Um, and where are we going to go for brunch? <laughs> so, you know, and they just had this incredible intuitive sense of the life of their listener and how to talk to them about what they were doing with two dope Queens through the lens of the listener's life. Okay. Wow. We are going to wrap up the main episode now, but we cannot stop here. I mean, if you're like me and, and uh, really, really en enjoying this, um, then the Supercaster's premium feed is where you need to go uh, because we, Michael and I, are going to deep dive into a bonus section that covers what Michael learned raising $6 million from listeners and particularly how to figure out what it is that uh, your fans might want and, and also how much they're prepared to pay for it. So if you'd like to listen to that, uh, you can sign up for Supercast's premium feed at premium.supercast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's free to get access to that. You'll have the premium feed in your podcast player in just a couple of taps. That's premium.supercast.com. Uh, there's no special apps to download. And, and once again, you're 100% free. Michael, uh, pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, look, I, for the all the makers, um, thank you for doing the hard work. Thank you for looking in the mirror. Thank you for being willing to put your life under a microscope and, and ask these questions about how to build a healthy relationship with your audience. I mean, there are so many easier ways to make a living and to not just focus on the craft and the art and the hustle and the sweat and the mic fails and everything else, but then to also put yourself through this as well. Um, I just have to say like, thank you because you're just, you know, speaking for the listeners, you know, you make our lives a lot richer. So thanks for being willing to take on this extra layer. All right, that's it folks. Bye for now.